Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Today, I'll be speaking with Reverend Jerry Vanderhart. Jerry, who now lives in Michigan, is a dear friend of mine who I met 20 years ago while he was serving as an interim pastor at my church in New Jersey. In this episode, My Home on an Iowa Farm, Jerry will be sharing his story of growing up on a farm in south-central Iowa. He will be telling stories that will paint a vivid picture of day-to-day farm life, including farm chores, schooling, family life, church, and community activities. Jerry's recollections of his childhood years will span from the mid-1930s to the early 1950s. I'd like to now welcome Jerry to our show. Welcome to our show, Jerry. Thanks, James. Okay, so I'm going to start off by making an observation. Your name, Vanderhart, sounds very Dutch. Can you tell us how your family came from the Netherlands to south-central Iowa? My great-grandfather back in 1855, left uh, Nykirk to the Netherlands. Uh, Apparently they had been going through economic hard times in the Netherlands. He was a baker, a confectioner baker. They had been discussing apparently for some time about the possibility of immigrating. Pella is where they ended up. Pella was founded in 1847. So they already had some people that were here. And so they decided to come. They departed from, Rotterdam area by ship. It took them 72 days on the ocean to get here to New York. They ended up in uh, New York, which they call Castle Garden was the receiving point. And from Castle Garden, they made their way by train to Burlington, Iowa. And that's where the train stopped. And from there on, they had to get on a, a hired wagon with a team and bring the rest of their small amount of possessions to Iowa, where apparently somebody was waiting for them to at least give them temporary shelter. So they had communicated with somebody else, some family members in Iowa? It wasn't family members. It was probably some prior resident of the same area that they came from. Okay. And then what happened? They arrived there and they had to set up and start building homes. The area had been settled somewhat by other people that were homesteading. What happened was there there was no chance for him to establish a bakery because there was already a bakery just for bread, but there there was no market apparently for confectioner type things that he was skilled in. And so they um, were able to obtain help in uh, moving north of Pella several miles and uh, got 80 acres of land and I don't know whether they had to build from scratch or whether they took over somebody that had, that in the prior years, uh, developed the place a little bit. But anyway, they ended up on this farm. And I often wondered how my great-grandfather had to adjust from being a baker to being becoming a farmer. I just can't imagine that that was a very easy uh, thing to do. He came with four children originally, three sons and a daughter. The daughter died a couple of years later, and then the three sons survived. And all the Vanderharts, at least that we know of in this country, have descended from those three brothers. Yeah, I can imagine if I was dropped somewhere in the middle of a new country and I had to produce living off the land, 
without having been a farmer, I probably would have starved to death. Yeah. <laughs> he and his family had to exist in a situation where he was not yet producing anything from a farm and he wasn't oh. able to really bake and make money that way. I'm wondering how they actually survived until he got up and running on a farm. Yeah, we. the only reason we know the d details that we know is that letters from my great grandmother were discovered in the Netherlands after the Second World War that she had written to people in the family and those letters contained the briefest of information about the trip over and about trying to settle in this country. And then from then on, there are great gaps. There were about a total of nine letters over the years, but great gaps of information that we would love to have known more about. They just didn't exist. So let's fast forward to where you were born. Where exactly were you born? And what was it in a house or was it somewhere else? My grandfather moved uh, away from the area where he first lived as a, uh, in his early years because he had a large family, nine sons and one daughter, my father being uh, third from the end. So they moved near a village called Peoria. It wasn't that many miles maybe that they moved, uh, four or five miles. So I grew up in a farmhouse uh, that my father and mother lived in on a 120 acre farm. And I was born there, delivered there even before the doctor arrived because my mother had a sister-in-law who was a nurse and across the road was her, her sister on a nearby farm and they helped deliver me before the doctor came. <laughs> can you imagine? I can only imagine. I mean, so there were no hospitals locally, obviously. Not close by, no. The, my, the closest hospital was about uh, 25 miles away. Rarely used by us for that matter. You used a local doctor who was about seven miles away. He was actually a what they called a homeopath in those days, doctor. He didn't even have a, uh, an MD. He was really, <laughs> <laughs> but he was a fine person. I, I remember him very well. So, yeah. He probably cut hair and pulled teeth too. No, I don't think he did that. <laughs> I think he was busy enough because those doctors had to make rounds of uh, farms and whatnot in those days because it was all farm country over there. Nothing, nothing else but farm country. Yeah. Let me back up and talk about your mom and dad. Tell us a bit about your dad, what he was doing for a living and what your mom was doing. My dad grew up as a farmer and uh, took up farming himself. Uh, my mother's parents were the same. They lived on a farm uh, not far from where uh, we lived. That was the, the main occupation for most people in that area. Obviously, there were shopkeepers some distance away, but there was a local general store in Peoria and a few uh, other businesses, but uh, basically farming was the major uh, source of income in, those, in that region. And my dad was basically a farmer who raised hogs in addition to the uh, normal crops of corn, oats, and a hay crop. Now, did they have nearby like craftsmen such as smiths? There was a blacksmith in Peoria, and there was um, kind of an automobile or a mechanical service for farm implements and so forth. Later on, as they became mechanized, I don't know who horseshoed the horses and things like that, because early on, farming was done mostly with horses. It wasn't done with the kind of equipment that eventually emerged out of time to help farmers do farming that would be more uh, congenial to 
growing crops and so forth. Less labor-saving devices. Horses are a lot to maintain and to keep up and so on. But they did it. Yeah, they did. So did your dad or mom have brothers or sisters or other relatives who had nearby farms? Yes, across the road, my other sister and her husband had a farm a little further away. My dad's older brother had a farm. In fact, before they even settled on our farm, they, the two of them farmed together for a little while on, an, on another uh, portion of land that the, was nearby. Yes, practically all of his brothers were farmers except his last brother. The rest were all engaged in farming. So, Jerry, let's go back to our discussion about when you were born. What year were you born, Jerry? I was born in 1934, right in the middle of the uh, Depression. Yeah, right smack in the middle of the Depression. And you were telling us about the home that you were born in. Could you expand on what that house was like? What kind of amenities did you have? What did the house look like? The house was a one-story house, which was somewhat unusual. Most farmhouses were at least two stories. It had only a cellar underneath for storing of uh, food and vegetables. Well, we occupied basically two bedrooms. There was a third bedroom uh, later on that was remodeled and utilized. It was a house that was heated by, originally by different stoves. I remember my father saying there were four chimneys on the house and all those chimneys obviously were the exit for the smoke of four wood-burning stoves. But the, there was a cook stove in the kitchen that was heated by wood and then another stove that was heated by wood, which later on was replaced by a stove that burned oil. After the war, my father remodeled the house considerably and dug a basement underneath it and put in a heating system that was much more efficient and useful for the house. It was a well-built house. I thought it had a pretty good style for the time. It was almost like a ranch-style house uh, uh, today. It had a mansard roof. It was painted white, and my parents kept it up very well. And then there were adjacent buildings, obviously, across the farm that uh, were for farm purposes. What about electricity and lighting? We didn't get electricity until after the war, that being the Second World War. Prior to that, we used oil-burning lamps and high-pressure gas lamps. The light was a whiter light than a kerosene lamp. That was the kind of lighting that we had in those very early times. So electricity was the welcome addition to the house. <laughs> oh, I, I bet it was. You know, when Hurricane Sandy hit in New Jersey, as you recall, we were out of electricity for six days. And oh, I, was wow. like, I was on my knees crying over it, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, being a history lover, I would often pause and think about my ancestors and Frankly, I mean, you're talking about the 1930s. Uh, 1946 is when we wired the uh, place for electricity. So my first 12 years of life um, that way. Yeah. So now I think about myself, uh, what a whiner I was to think that we were uh, so hard pressed without power, but we get so dependent on it now. So what about washing and things like that? How did your mom deal with that? We had a uh, Maytag washing machine. We had the washing machine was located in, in an adjacent small house. It was powered by a gasoline motor. Obviously, the clothes, when, when you wash them and, uh, and rinse them, you hung them out on, on a line outdoors. I remember we had extensive lines in the backyard. That's kind of how we handled our laundry situation. Always washed on Monday. She ironed on Tuesday. <laughs> 
she just kind of had a, a real schedule that way. It was kind of interesting how that practice uh, seemed to be a, a standard one from my early days. Did she have to pull start the washing machine like a lawnmower? Uh, I think my dad did it. It had a pedal starting device that you stepped on it and it apparently, uh, uh, Maytag's had a very unusual in engine at that time. It was just a one cylinder pop pop engine. I think it was probably a four cycle engine. I think my dad helped her quite a bit to get things going. To get it started. What about refrigeration? We had no refrigeration until after the war. The way you preserved your foods was the, the cellar under the house was obviously colder uh, being into, into the ground. She canned a lot of the meats. She, uh, you did that with those glass jars. You canned your vegetables that you grew in your garden and you preserved them that way and rotated them out. I guess later on we had canned foods which you could buy in the stores. Gardens were a big source of food supply for us and as I recall uh, in those early times. It sounded like you were pretty self-sufficient there with food. Fortunately, because I think uh, when you think of the depression when people in the cities were looking for food and trying to eke out an existence, we had plenty of food because I think we had a, a garden that was easily an acre of land, uh, maybe two acres for that matter. And it consisted of a vegetable section and uh, other sections where he had uh, fruit trees. So you grew your own potatoes, you grew all the, the things you needed. And uh, the meats obviously came from the animals that you had on the farm, uh, both cattle and hogs. Frequently you'd share with our neighbor, who was our uh, uncle, obviously. We shared um, butchering animals and the women then preserved those meats uh, as was standard in those, those times. Mm. I'm glad you brought up about the depression because I wanted to ask you about that. I know you were born in 1934, which was in the middle of the depression and the nation started to come out of the depression when World War II started around 39, 40. Of course, the U.S. didn't enter till 41. You would have been very young, but do you have any recollections or do you remember your mom and dad talking about how the depression may have affected your area, even though they had a lot of self-sufficiency what, did it affect the area at all, the Great Depression? I think it's stultified the area. I don't think a lot of improvements were made to the properties. You did the best you could. My father had carpentry skills so that uh, he could keep those things in repair and so on in the buildings. Very little painting was done. Uh, I remember a major paint job that we did after the Second World War in the early 50s. We finally had enough money assembled together to do some real painting of, of some buildings that had been neglected in that period. I think they just were able to live very, very cautiously. I remember my father saying that the minister in the town, in the village church there, complained that they weren't raising his salary enough and they couldn't get the money together to do it. This was not a tiny church. It was a church of 300 people at least, adults and children together. Money was very scarce. It just wasn't there. Wasn't there. Did any people, any men wander onto your farm and looking for work from any neighboring areas during the depression? Do you know? I'm not aware of that. I know that a few farmers that had a little larger land had what they called a hired hand who lived in with them usually. 
or if they didn't live in with them in an adjacent small structure that they could keep them in. But uh, I don't remember that there, there were people wandering around looking for work on farms. I think that was not, not something that was done in our area, at least. Or in the cities and the larger towns, probably. Yeah, well, the closest city for us, you know, would have been Des Moines in those days, and that was the capital of the state. Pella, in those days, was 2,000 people. The village of Peoria was probably a 75 people, maybe at the most. All small towns, nothing major, obviously, like we're used to on the East Coast here. If I'm doing the math correctly, you would have been about seven years old when mm. Pearl Harbor was attacked in December yeah. 1941. Do you have yeah. any recollections of that day? Yes, I do. I remember my father hearing about it on the radio and telling us about it. It looked like the war was going to be more, much more than just Europe. It was going to involve Japan. It was a Sunday morning, obviously, when the attack was made. I don't know what time that was, Iowa time, but um, I still remember my father hearing it on the radio. So the war years, how did that affect your family's life in Iowa? Well, the war years for farmers were productive years because we were producing over and above in the war effort. We were doing this not only for the troops, but food was being shared in, in war-torn countries as well by the United States. So it was full production. And that's when my father made the shift from horses to a tractor. Tractors were available, were produced during the war. I think we bought ours in 1943 or 44. Um, that was towards the end, but nonetheless, it made a major change in the productivity of time and effort on farms. It actually raised farm prices, the war did, and made it possible for farmers to have some, some money that was in cash instead of just improved things that they produced, you know, and, and could barter or change in whatever way that was done. Do you remember any of the young men or maybe, maybe some of the women in the area enlisting? One, one woman uh, was a WAC, W-A-C, and there were at least 12 or 13 soldiers from our congregation, three of which were my cousins, I believe. And I remember there was a flag up in the front of the church with uh, blue stars. Uh, we had no gold star. Nobody was killed in the war. We would take turns writing to uh, our servicemen and women. Members in the church were encouraged to do that. And I remember my father uh, writing to uh, each one. Uh, he was an elder in the church, and he took a, a responsibility that way. We would rarely get correspondence back occasionally, maybe, but we would hear from their parents because they would get their letters. That was kind of how the correspondence was done. I bet they really appreciated getting those letters from home. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm thinking when these young people went off to fight, there was probably a, a big sense of patriotism and everything like that. But as the war grew on and the casualties started to mount, I'm sure people were probably very afraid for their loved ones who went off to fight. Yeah, I don't know exactly where all of them ended. I had a cousin I know that was uh, driving a tank in France and it was hit by a, a shell of some kind or something and he was severely burned. And I know that that created quite a bit of anxiety. I think our families were not used to the cultural differences that you'd find among soldiers. Many of them were in culture shock when they met soldiers from the cities and so forth, where the lifestyles were very different from 
the conservative lifestyle that we had out where I grew up. Yeah, I would imagine that would definitely be the case. Now, I want to get back to the farm again. Okay. When you were growing up, young man, when did you start taking on chores around the farm and what kind of things did you do? Well, I did simple things. My dad had a couple hundred chickens. And so we had to um, gather the eggs. We had to clean out the nests, periodically clean out the manure. And we had equipment, limited forms of equipment to do that. I remember we had quite a manure spreader, which we used to spread the manure on the land. But I was focused on the chickens early on. Later on, I had to do more with the hogs. And that was to see to it that their feeders were filled with corn and with a mash that was made out of grain of various types of grain. My dad didn't have many cattle, maybe 15, 16, 17 cattle. Uh, some were beef and, and three or four were for milking purposes. I didn't do much milking of cows. I would step in occasionally to help out if he had to be uh, sidetracked on something else. But uh, milking was done twice a day for those cows. Uh, my mother sometimes would help out with that. So my job was basically the smaller jobs until I got to be a teenager. I was expected to do a lot more. So when you were younger and doing these chores, yeah, we'll talk about school later, but what times were you doing these chores? What times of the day? I would get up in the morning. Dad usually was up at five o'clock and I had to get up around seven and do quick things that he assigned to me before I'd go off to school and be taken off to school. School usually started at nine o'clock in the morning and usually ran till about three, 3.30 in the afternoon. After school, I had more chores to do and uh, spent more time doing whatever the assignments that he would leave for me to do and expect of me. So I hear about a lot of work getting done, which yeah. is something that you had to do to sustain yourselves. What about fun on the farm? What kind of things did you do for fun? My dad was a softball player, so we did a lot of softball playing between me and my sister and cousins who lived down the, uh, the road a little bit. I would pitch or I would catch, usually. Other things that we did was, uh, in the wintertime, we did a lot of sledding. Our farm was uh, slightly hilly, and there were areas where sledding was wonderful. Plenty of snow in the winter, so we'd do a lot of sledding. And we even did that at school. We'd take our sleds to school. And during the noon hour break, we would go sledding. It was a nice hill behind the school. I had a, a number of small toys. They were pretty limited, but my dad had a sand pile. I used to play with my trucks and load up the sand in them and uh, truck them around the, the area and playful things like that. I eventually had a bicycle and I also had a Shetland pony and I would take him riding through the fields the bicycle I would do because we had to pick up our mail at a different farm where the mail turned and went down a different road. So it wasn't delivered to the front of our driveway. And uh, I used the bicycle for that. And it was not easy for a bicycle because we only had gravel roads in those times. We never had paved roads at all. You played in the barn. My dad had a section of the barn that wasn't utilized a lot. We set up some leftover pieces of furniture so my sister and I could play house there. We had a dog and several cats, so we played with them. It was a variety of things that we could do. Do you remember the name of your dog or your cat? Well, the one dog was Rex. I remember him. He was um, a rat terrier 
dog. He was very good for uh, keeping mice and rats at bay in the corn cribs on the farm. Uh, very useful dog that way. He wasn't a, a great pet. Uh, we never let the, the animals in the house like people do now. They stayed outdoors, they were fed outdoors, and uh, they were comfortable in the barns usually. The cats, I don't think we ever named the cats. <laughs> there were so many. <laughs> you definitely had uh, rodent control embedded. Oh, yeah, in your rodent home. Control. <laughs> I think you told me at one time in one of our previous conversations that you used to jump off something into hay. Is that something you did? Yeah, the, the barn uh, had a hay mow. In the early days, we had loose hay. Later on, we had baled hay. But when the hay was loose, you could walk on the beams up in the barn that supported the barn and jump off right into the loose hay. And it was, that was fun to do that. I remember pushing my sister off of, the, <laughs> off of one of the beams. Uh, she wasn't exactly appreciative of that, but- uh, I can't imagine why. <laughs> she said I was mean to her at times. I don't remember being mean, but uh, it's in the eye of the beholder, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I also remember you telling me that there was a creek there was a creek that ran through the entire property. It was a part of the watershed of the area. I found that creek very interesting with the different kinds of uh, bugs and... Uh, fish or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I never remember any fish. There might have been minnows at the most, but it was mostly uh, water insects that you'd see there. I remember the one that looked like it was a double-winged airplane. I don't remember what the name of that... Uh, insect was, but it was beautiful to see it fly over the water and would land on the sides and so forth. Apparently one time, I, when I was very young, I wandered off with the dog to this creek. They looked for me apparently quite a while. And finally, when the dog reappeared, he led to wherever I was quite a distance away on the property. So that story stuck with me. Another thing that I was, sometimes I was a little ornery, sometimes I would throw uh, cobs, corn cobs at the horses in their stalls. And apparently one time I got a little too close to either the cob slipped and I went to pick it up or something. The horse at the same time reared up one of his legs and caught me on the head on the top. Oh! And as a result, I had an injury on the top. So whenever I tell this story, people say, well, now I understand that you were hit in the head while you are the way you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, a little bit of justice there from the horse. A little horse. bit of justice yeah. that horse did. I didn't do that again. <laughs> now, besides throwing corn cobs at the horse, did yeah. you ever get into any other kind of mischief that you got in trouble for? I think the most mischief I did was probably, I had a BB gun, which I loved to use. To, we had loads of English sparrows in our chicken house. And frequently I tried to pick them off with the BB gun. You didn't always strike them in the head, you'd have to hit them there because they had plenty of feathers on them. And the other thing I apparently did once was I threw eggs against the side of the chicken house. Not that many, but two or three. And my father saw the drippings and he told me that he would find me a nickel for every one that I threw against the building. And he counted all the spots and I think it, it probably tallied up to a dime. <laughs> You terrible kid, you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a lot of money for me because they, I never had an allowance. I would get a little bit of money once in a while from uncles or aunts. I had a couple of uncles and aunts that didn't have children. 
and they sort of favored us, the two of us, and uh, occasionally we'd get a little bits of cash that way. His fining was a good idea, I think, to curb my appetite for splattered eggs on the side of the building. <laughs> Did you have any other children from the neighborhood come over to play, or were they all making their own fun on their own farms? When we went sledding, ball games. Uh, otherwise, um, I think we were pretty much occupied with our own families. Occasionally, if we went and visited places, we did do that. Uh, my parents belonged to a group of people, about a dozen couples, who gathered once a month for singing together. They called it uh, the Larks Club. They were singers. And we children would come along with those things, and we would have to uh, make up games in these houses that we were in. And uh, we obviously got noisy once in a while and overdid the singing group together and we would be scolded for uh, getting out of hand. But yeah, we would play together that way. And those were occasions that we still remember. You talked about chores around the farmhouse with the animals and uh, things around the house. Yeah. What about the actual field farm work? Can you tell us a little bit about when you started to do that and what did that involve? Well, I was not very good at driving horses, so I never did much work on the land driving horses. But when the tractor came, I was older. Uh, 1944, we got the tractor, so then I was already 10 years old. By the time I was 12 or 13, my father let me drive the tractor. I began to do a lot of the... Uh, Preparation of the land for uh, crops. I never actually planted the corn, but I prepared by what we called harrowing and disking the land. And then when the corn was in and growing, we would cultivate the corn twice in the season. And I loved doing that. I also liked to mow hay. We had a hay mower on the back of our tractor. And that was something that I could do and also rake the hay into windrows for baling purposes or when we still had loose hay, we had a hay loader that was done onto the rack or onto the wagon. Use of the tractor made it possible for me to really do a lot of the uh, work on the land. So it was you and your dad at that point? Yeah. You mentioned corn and hay. Did you have any other crops? Yeah, there was an oats crop also. In the early days, they had a, a group of farmers had what they called a threshing ring. They owned a big machine that you throw the oats into by bundles. And the kernels were separated out, and the chaff was blown into a stack. Later on, you got a combine, which combined the two together, and that simplified the uh, harvesting of oats. My dad raised quite a bit of oats. He rotated crops. He believed in rotation so that the land wasn't overly uh, corn to death, because corn takes a lot of nitrogen out of the soil. Of course, later on, they learned how to feed the soil with extra nitrogen uh, commercially. And that was done both at the planting time and then later on when the land was resting during the winter, you'd let it soak in and it was applied by a spraying device. I can't remember what it was called, but it was, it was done that way. But my father still liked to rotate crops. He also was very sympathetic to um, erosion on land because our farm was more hilly than flat. Much of Iowa was considered flat land, but we were in a hillier region. And so he rotated crops, not only rotated, but he also had the land laid out in strips with buffer zones so that the, land, the water would not erode, particularly when you had these showers that would come and dump two inches of water in a half hour or something like that. 
because you could have storms like that occasionally. So he was uh, pretty conscientious about that. Mm. So was your sister during this time when you started doing your regular chores plus the field work, what kind of work was she doing? What was expected of her? Uh, she did some outdoor work. She worked in the garden a lot. She liked gardening. In fact, when she had her own family, she did, still always had gardens and so forth. She lived only in town. She never, her husband never was a farmer. So she liked to do gardening. And housework was something that she did as well, helped my mother. Uh, my mother kept a very clean house. I don't think we had a speck of dust in the place. <laughs> <laughs> she was always running the vacuum or prior to the vacuum cleaner, you had these uh, carpet sweeper, it was called. They, uh, they were used and my mother was always dusting and so forth. So I think my sister played a big role in that. Probably the canning of the food as well. With a little bit of that, yeah, because still likes to do can certain things. I don't think she did much sewing. My mother did a limited amount of sewing. Did your mom make your clothes or did you buy clothes? No, she repaired. We, we had a lot of patches on our pants and stuff like that. We had denim pants, obviously, and you'd wear them out at the knees. Today, you know, people like to expose their knees in the denim pants. That would be a no-no in my time. We would always have uh, denim patches put on other things that needed doing. And my mother darned socks, even for that matter. You wear your toenail th through a big toe, you know, in, the fr in your socks. <laughs> she would <laughs> patiently redo those. I can still see her doing that. So after the harvest and before the planting season, I would imagine the workload for your dad and for you would have decreased some. The winter was maintenance of animal comfort. You, we had hog house and we had cattle barn, but you still had to feed those animals in the winter, take care of their needs. We had water tanks that stored water. We had a windmill on the farm that pumped water for the cattle and hogs and chickens. And in the winter, you'd have to maintain those tanks with a certain amount of heat because they would freeze on the top. So they were spread out to uh, these other tanks, and I can still see my father. We had what we call tank heaters, which were used uh, to burn wood in to keep the water flowing to the animals. So that was a chore. And then obviously, uh, I always think we had more snow there in those days than we do now. I can remember huge piles of snow. In fact, the roads sometimes would be so snowed in that we we were landlocked uh, for two or three days before the plows would come through and open up the, the roads for us. So on the farmyards, you did a lot of shoveling. <laughs> Other than your Shetland pony that you had, did you still have any horses after you changed from the plow horses to the tractor? I don't really remember how the horses came to an end uh, or whether my father sold them. Uh, he may have done that as well. Sure. Um, there were limited markets for those things in those days. I can't recall really how that was done. Okay. Well, I wanted to talk about school. Again, there's a lot of work here going on. You'd have some fun going on, but you also had school. Tell us what your school was like and how it fit in with your schedule. On the church grounds, there was a building called the, the Peoria Christian School. It was a uh, two-story building with four classrooms, a library, and downstairs uh, in the basement was the furnace room and also a small room for ping pong. 
outside the uh, school was a uh, basketball court and a softball area where we could play softball because we would do games with other schools, other Christian schools in the region. But the school itself had about 100 pupils, maybe a little bit more at, at times, but roughly the average was between 80 to 100 uh, and pretty evenly divided amongst classes. I think my, my class, uh, the class of uh, 1948, eighth grade class was 13 kids, I think, if, if I'm not mistaken. And I have a picture of it and with the principal. So there was a principal and at least two teachers, maybe three teachers. We didn't have teacher's aides in those days. That was a luxury. Uh, there were sometimes, occasionally some parents probably volunteered to help out with certain things. But it was a basic curriculum with a Christian emphasis. I know we were released one day to go to, uh, over to the church basement for what we called catechism classes with the minister of the church. But other than that, it was uh, a 9 to 3.30 situation uh, with uh, a noon hour recess and an afternoon break, small break, and then on and uh, back home. School day was uh, a class of uh, at least two grades in each room. There were four rooms, eight grades. We didn't have kindergarten. So the teachers taught at least two grades in each room. The rooms were rather well equipped with uh, blackboards and desks and, um, and books and so forth. The library, I read the Sugar Creek Gang stories in those days. And other ones, this series, I don't remember, but we were allowed certain times when the teacher was dealing with the other class so we could be excused and go to the library and do some reading there or studying in, in the next uh, course of the day that you'd be doing. And uh, we covered all the subjects you could think of. How far away was the school from your home? Two and a half miles. Two and a half miles. How would you get to school? My father would take us. Later on, they had little minibuses that they were able to afford, and they would make the rounds and pick us up and, dr and drop us off. You mentioned about your dad taking you to school. I meant to ask you earlier, when did your mom and dad get a car, and what did they drive? Apparently, when my parents were married, my father had a Model T Ford. I think it was um, a three-door car. The Fords in those days had the planetary transmission. You didn't have a gear shift. You had a high and a low range on the planetary gears. They were married in 1923, so I think he already had that. So I don't remember riding in that car uh, because uh, I, I did, apparently, because in 1936, in the midst of the Depression, he was able to buy a, a new Chevrolet, four-door Chevrolet. He traded it in his Model T. For another $600, he was able to buy the, uh, the Chevy. And it was a brand new Chevrolet. So he had a 36 Chevy. And uh, that car, I even drove that car for a while. That was probably my first car that I learned on. He had that until 1949 when he bought a, when he was able to uh, get a, a Pontiac. That was quite an upscale for him. <laughs> uh, definitely. I bet it was. I wanted to ask you about church. Was church a central part of your life growing up on the farm? Oh, it certainly was. In those days, you had to go to two services Sunday, one at 9.30 in the morning. And then between that time, you would go home for lunch. 
come back at 2.30 for an afternoon service. And those uh, farmers that lived uh, some distance away, as much as 10 miles or eight miles, would stay over and they would bring their lunch to church and, and have fellowship together between services. Uh, morning service was usually in English and the afternoon service was in the Dutch language until the Second World War when the minister was not able to preach in the Dutch language. They uh, discontinued the Dutch services at that time. But I learned my Dutch by speaking it at home both, but also hearing it in church and learning to sing the, the Psalms from the Psalter. Uh, we're all in Dutch with the tunes that date way back to the times of Calvin in Geneva. So we had that continuity out there, out in the plains of Iowa. The, the services were long, they were an hour and, and uh, 15 to hour and 20 minutes because sermons usually lasted uh, 40 minutes interspersed with some singing by the congregation. We didn't have choirs. We did have a pipe organ. The congregation was a great singing congregation. It was always known in the area. So I guess I learned how to sing in church as a result of that. Now, Joe, you've, you've had a lifelong love of music, particularly singing and organ music. Yeah, that's right. Does it stem from that time? Yes, it does. <laughs> In 1950, they decided that they should change the organ from the uh, one that stood in the corner of the church's uh, sanctuary and was having some problems that they felt ought to be changed. And there was a uh, loft in the sanctuary that was, I guess, originally designed back in the time when the church was first built to have to house a, a pipe organ. And so in 1951, they imported a pipe organ from the Netherlands. And I remember very distinctly picking up crates with my father from the uh, depot in Pella, uh, pipes that had come across the ocean on ships and they were set up in the church. I also had a couple of cousins who were pretty good organists for their time. And I still kick myself to this day that I didn't take piano lessons more seriously than I did because I would have loved to have been able to um, get an organist myself. Fortunately, I married a, a woman who was who was able to play the organ and who brought delights to me over the years, but that's another story. <laughs> One more thing, Jerry. When you and I spoke recently about the church your family attended in Iowa, you had said that it was not the original church built on that location. Can you share what happened to the original structure? The original structure was uh, caught fire because uh, right immediately next to it or north on the north side, there was a school building, a Christian school building, and that school was founded in 1904 for people in the church, basically. What happened was, as a result of that founding, uh, many of the local little one-room schools were depopulated of students, and that created anxiety on the part of the earlier English-speaking <laughs> neighbors who kind of resented that depopulation of those local one-room schools. So over time, as we begin to move into that century, you have the uh, pending involvement of the United States in the First World War. And the church happened to have a minister who was counseling the young men to register as conscientious objectors, possibly, mm -hmm. if they wanted to. Uh, they didn't want to go to uh, be conscripted into the war. One of my father's brothers did that. Uh, even though he did go to the war, he was, he was not in the battle line. 
but that idea also started to smolder in the, in the uh, non-Dutch speaking community around us. And when that happened, they started to surveil the Dutch community somewhat. People would uh, stop at the general store and listen to conversations. If they were in Dutch, they would frown on that. Uh, the governor didn't help the matter either in the state because he decreed that services should be only in the English language. Uh, and that affected, of course, the German-speaking communities throughout Iowa and the Dutch communities uh, as also, and probably some of the other communities that were Scandinavian in origin and so forth. So as a result of that ruling and the result of this on the local level, it uh, got to a fevered pitch, apparently, uh, amongst uh, both protagonists and antagonists. And before you know it, somebody was hired to um, uh, torch the school, and they used an accelerant. And uh, because we didn't have a fire department in those days uh, in the rural areas, building the, the school caught fire, obviously, and was burning, and the flames spread to the, uh, to the church. And the church caught fire, and so what they focused on basically was to save the, ma the manse or the parsonage of the church, because it was also directly in line for being uh, burnt if, if they didn't uh, save something. So they did all they could to save the, um, the manse, and they just let the church burn, and the school was fully in, in flames already by the time they got to it. This happened during the night, and somebody happened to see the flames, and uh, the word got spread through the community somehow. So anyhow. That building uh, burned and uh, it took them a, two years at least to uh, gather the insurance money and to gather money amongst themselves. And they built, instead of a wood building, they built a brick building. They said, they're not gonna lose this building by fire. And that <laughs> building has survived. It's, it was built in 1919, still standing today and with additions to it, it's been in use all these years. So Jerry, did people think that the Dutch-speaking people were somehow in league with the Germans or something? Well, there are similarities in language, obviously. And there, there was some feeling that uh, on the part of the uh, non-Dutch people that we probably were sympathetic to the Germans. But the minister was not sympathetic to the Germans. He just felt that America should not be involved in a, in a war that was started in Europe. It was spreading like wildfire, apparently. Uh, I don't know the whole story of the First World War, but... I know that it took a while for other countries to get involved, and his opinion was that we shouldn't be involved in that. Well, he was forced to leave the community for his safety because the, for a time he was briefly arrested and then released, he left the community. Wow, what an incredible story. Jerry, did your father participate in rebuilding the new church at all? I don't think so. My father was, at that time, was 20 years old, he was not a brick mason. <laughs> my, dad, my dad could do carpentry work and so forth. He did help drive the minister to Des Moines, where he caught a train to get out of the area. Des Moines is the capital of the state. To safety. Yeah. But your yeah. dad certainly remembered the burning of the church. Oh, very vividly. That must have been traumatic for him and the community of the church. It was. Very, very traumatic, yeah. They met for two winters in a, in a horse barn on the property because that was the only public facility that could accommodate, you know, a couple hundred people. So there you have it. Thank you, Jerry. So how did you celebrate holidays through the church, at home, particularly like Christmas? What would a Christmas holiday look like for you and your family? At Christmas, the school 
which was mostly uh, made up of pupils from the church, had a Christmas program in the church. And after that, we were treated uh, to oranges and candy canes, big candy canes. That was our gift from uh, the school board. But the program was done in the church, and that program consisted both of singing and recitations of various kinds. It did not take part during a church service. It was done as a separate program. I know on Christmas Day we had service. We didn't have Christmas Eve services in those days. We had Christmas morning services. At Easter, nothing really special was done. We didn't observe the Lenten season that much in those days. Good Friday was not even celebrated as such. The churches in Pella got together for what they called a three-hour service. What about at home? Did you have any relatives over? Did you get any gifts? Did you have a Christmas tree or decorations or anything like that? We didn't have a Christmas tree at all until we got electricity. <laughs> when we got electricity in 1946, I don't think we had a tree until about 1949, maybe three years later. Then we started to have a tree. The gifts were very small. We just didn't make a big deal out of, out of Christmas gifts. Just wasn't done. A lot different than today. A lot different than today, you know. How about relatives? Any Did anybody come over for Christmas supper or Easter supper or any other holidays? No, uh, relatives, you, what you did in our day was relatives came to you after church on Sunday afternoon and have coffee with you. When that was done, it was you know, prearranged. Occasionally, it would be a surprise thing, but uh, usually it was it was arranged that you would have uh, different ones come at different uh, times after church, and usually it was uh, coordinated with uh, Dutch pastries of one kind or another. And, Sounds uh, good. Yeah, and uh, coffee, obviously. That was kind of the time you visited relatives. Uh, the other time, at Thanksgiving, my mother's side of the family got together as a group and we would meet at each other's homes in a cycle. My father's family was so large and so many cousins. I, you know, on my father's side, I had 40 cousins and uh, <laughs> um, their family was so large. They didn't do that anymore, but they had a once a year Vanderhart reunion so that the, the various uh, children and grandchildren would get together. And that was done in the summertime, usually in August. It wasn't done during the holiday seasons, no. So Jerry, you ended up eventually leaving the farm. That's a, an entirely different story for another yep. time. Yep. Can you tell us how your decision to leave the farm came about? Well, when I graduated uh, from uh, Pella Christian High School, part of the curriculum of the Christian high school was uh, Bible uh, study and Bible, not only study, but bi uh, Bible teaching. And we had um, opportunities to go to college in, in town. There was a college called Central College. It was a uh, college related to the Reformed Church. I happened to be Christian Reformed in those days, but it was related to the Reformed Church in America. It was uh, a college that drew kids from different parts of the country and the, and the region there as well, including some kids from the East Coast, oddly enough. I went one year uh, there because my father, he wanted to see how I would do in college, I guess. Uh, I really wanted to go to Calvin in Grand Rapids where some of my classmates went. He kept me on the farm and I worked part-time to help him, but he let me go. 
my second year of college to uh, Grand Rapids. My classmates in high school were the ones that I roomed with here yeah, as well. So that gave me the uh, incentive also to, to make that change. But I knew that, that I wasn't going to be a farmer. I, I just, I liked farming and yet I, I just didn't feel that that was where I was to be. I can't say that I was, I had a calling yet to, to become a minister at that time. My calling was greatly much in, in music. I, I sang in a college group and I was quite friendly with the organist of the college. He was an unusual fellow and took us around to different recitals and so forth. So music was kind of the emphasis when I first went to Central. Of course, when I came to Calvin, I did the same thing. I got into the a cappella choir here right off the bat and uh, enjoyed that tremendously with uh, the kinds of stuff that I did. But so uh, to get back to your question, I, I really think that I was, I had made up my mind that I wasn't going to be a farmer <laughs> and I would pursue whatever would develop in my, in a college career. And you ended up going into the ministry. I ended up going into the ministry. Yes. On the East Coast, no less. And that's all a whole story in itself also. <laughs> and if you hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have met you. That's right. <laughs> and I wouldn't have met my wife. And you wouldn't have met, even more importantly than meeting uh, me, you wouldn't have met your wife. Because you know what? I never dated a lot in, in high school and college, early college days. Some, I just wasn't um, drawn to anybody, I guess. Mm -hmm. Or they weren't drawn to me, let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you had the, the right one was coming along. That's for sure. Yes. Yes. Jerry, I have one final question for you. How did your early life on the farm impact who you are today? Well, being raised on the farm, you're obviously always together with each other. And my father was a very spiritual man. We had Bible reading at the table every, at every meal. He was intent that I should know the basics of the Christian gospel. And one thing I remember him doing was frequently on Sunday afternoons, if we didn't have guests over for coffee, we would take a passage of the Bible. And usually he was picking on the book of Romans because he felt that that was the crucial thing that I should get under my belt good and properly. So I think his, his spiritual impact made a profound impression on me, not only consciously, but even in my subconscious. And I think that that played a role in, in my eventually going into the ministry. Jerry, I want to thank you so much for your time and for telling us this wonderful story about your early days on the farm in Iowa. It answered so many questions that I had about what it would be like living on a farm back in the 30s and 40s and early 50s. And I'm sure that our listeners will also enjoy what you had to say. So again, I want to thank you very much, Jerry, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You're very welcome. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.